Hello and welcome to this episode of Tomorrow with me, Nick Hewer, and Allianz. In this series, we're exploring the major global trends that will affect and shape businesses and whole industries in the years and decades to come. We want to discuss how such trends will influence businesses, identify the risks they bring, and look ahead to the opportunities they present. Today, we're looking at Brexit, a subject that divided the UK in June 2016. Many negotiations are, of course, taking place before the UK's departure on Friday, the 29th of March 2019. And a 21-month transition period has been agreed with the aim of smoothing the way up to the 31st of December 2020. What happens between now and then? What tangible effects has the decision already had? And what outcomes, impacts and opportunities should businesses already be preparing for? Joining me today to discuss this are four expert guests. We've got uh, Neil Duane, global strategist, Alliance Global Investors. We've got Alan Sodi, Federation of Small Businesses, and Jonathan De Beer, Senior Advisor at ABI. That's the Association of British Insurers. And finally, Ben Reid, Associate Partner at EY. Welcome to you all. Now, let's be frank. Neil, how much of a shock was the Brexit vote to you? Well, I, I, I think during the, the campaign for Brexit, I don't think that the, uh, the Brexiteers expected to win. And so I, when we saw the markets fall over 10% on that day, on the Friday, um, I think it clearly was a shock. Um, but I think we all, uh, certainly in the financial markets, underestimated or overestimated how much the impact would happen in the short term. And therefore, within a month, the markets were back to normal. The only lasting legacy, which we're now seeing um, redressed as clarity begins to appear in the Brexit uh, negotiations, was the collapse of sterling, which obviously had implications for the UK economy, for inflation in the UK economy and, and other and interest rates. Now, from a businessman's point of view, Alan, you're with the uh, Federation of Small Businesses. How much of a shock was it for you? In many ways, I think there is a perception that the business community was shocked by this and that, that there had been this great assumption across all businesses that, that, that the Remain side would win. And yet, while, while I think that may be true with a lot of the bigger business side of it, with the smaller business side, perhaps not, because in the run-up to the referendum, our members were surveyed and they were more or less split down the middle, like the population as a whole. So at that low level, with, with self-employed people, with people running quite small businesses, you know, there were real differences of opinion as to whether Brexit would be a good or a bad thing. And I think that's probably still true today. But there were plenty of people running their own firms who actually were on the side of Brexit and who did think that it would happen. And I think as the, uh, in the last couple of weeks of that campaign, the polls had narrowed and, and really we probably shouldn't look back at it as a, a great shock. Now then, from the insurance industry's point of view, Jonathan, Senior Advisor at the Association of British Insurers, what, what, what's your take on it? Well, I think insurers are set up to manage risk. That's what they do. That's their bread and butter. And insurers had contingency plans in place. I think lots of people are shocked by the votes. And may, many of us here, maybe personally, may have been uh, shocked by the vote. But I think insurers have been quick to act, quick to realise that we are going to be living with an uncertain environment for the foreseeable future. And whilst we may get some some forms of political agreement, political certainty. It's going to take a long time before we get legal certainty in this process. And insurers are well-placed and have their contingency plans in place, both for how they want to treat customers 
and how they want to continue to access markets, including the EU markets, uh, after Brexit. Ben, associate partner at EY, what's your view? We're a major advisor to the industry, Nick, and we've deliberately taken a neutral stance around Brexit, specifically because we've been working with our clients to help them prepare for either outcome of the vote. So I think that mitigated the shock for many firms for Brexit because they had contingency plans ready to go. And as John was saying, those developed pretty quickly after the vote. From a personal perspective, I'd planned to buy all my holiday money in euros on the Friday of the vote. And <laughs> that wasn't the greatest financial prediction I've made in my life, I have to say. Indeed. <laughs> all right, turning to business now, particularly small business, I guess, Alan, are they getting their heads around it or is, it, is the future still too uncertain? The big boys, perhaps, have got the power and the, the, the resources and the people to really get dug in at the very start. But what about the small businesses? I think you're right. You know, a small business with maybe 10 or 20 employees, even if they do export or if they have EU supply chains or whatever, they will clearly have lots of of thoughts about what is going to happen. But they haven't got teams of people who can be drawing up contingency plan A, B, C, D and E. And, And therefore, it is important that they get to find out as soon as possible that these negotiations keep moving forward. What the final outcome is going to be, what they are going to be dealing with in terms of trade, in terms of access to workers and skills, in terms of replicating EU funding and so on. And so it it is, I think at the moment, there is a a great feeling among a a lot of small businesses, whichever side of the argument they were on in the run up to the referendum, of, well, let's just plough on. And yes, we now have a transition period. and, And we at the Federation of Small Businesses had been calling for that from a very early stage so that it buys a bit more time and there's only one clear set of changes. Now, Neil, do your thoughts chime with that? Yes, I mean, I think when I think about the challenges of small businesses, many of them would be much more concerned about the the, the damage to the domestic economy. Was the economy going to slow down, head into a recession, or maybe even worse? Um, And and so I I think uh, in in the last 18 months, they have been relatively reassured that the UK has done significantly better than the government predicted once we'd voted to leave. However, I do think as we uh, we look into the transition period and as March uh, next year approaches uh, pretty quickly, I think there's concerns now that the UK economy is starting uh, to find uh, the waters muddied with concerns and uncertainties around Brexit. Jonathan, do you think that people are getting their heads around What's coming down the track? I think, um, as has been highlighted already, there's a lot of legal uncertainty. The politicians are still negotiating. Uh, it's hard for businesses, both big and small, to understand what what risks uh, lie ahead. Um, but I think the advantage maybe we have in, in a sector like insurance is we're heavily regulated. And we can lean on the regulators to to effectively communicate with businesses to say what they expect, how they expect you to treat your customers, how they expect you to set up shop in other in other EU member states. So I think in heavily regulated uh, sectors, uh, especially insurance and financial services, both the Bank of England and the Financial Conduct Authority have been out there talking about Brexit and talking about their expectations. What we don't have is that clarity from the other side. None of the EU regulators are talking about it and none of the none, nobody at the European Commission is, is giving that clarity for how businesses need to operate. Mm. Now, Ben, would I be right in thinking that, you know, on, on, on Monday, the economy's in terrible trouble, it's the slowest, it's the slowest in Europe, and then Tuesday, there's so much misinformation floating about or, you know, people are 
reporting it from different standpoints. But where, where, where are we, do you think, from your point of view, you know, a candid uh, view? Are people getting their heads around it? Are they really settling on it? And in what way has the, the, the UK economy reacted to this? So our clients have had to make a series of assumptions around Brexit. The key assumption is that we will leave the EU on the 29th of March 2019. That remains the same, despite um, the progress around the transition agreement. And that means that, in particular, UK headquartered insurers have had to proceed with their plans to set up subsidiaries in the EU27. There are 31 insurers who've announced their plans to do that, and they're pretty well progressed. From an economic perspective, I think that has been really good for some EU territories, in particular Ireland, Luxembourg, Belgium, which are where many insurers have announced they're going to be setting up um, organisation with real substance moving forwards. Mm. It's interesting, the Irish question, because I ran into, as it were, the uh, Minister of External Affairs, the Irish Minister of External Affairs, who's essentially sort of foreign guy. He said, we're building like there's no tomorrow in Dublin. We want them to come. We want the law firms to come. We want the insurance people to come, the bankers to come. And uh, one of the big problems is they just don't have enough schools of the right calibre for the sort of expats to be, you know, to educate their kids. But they're mad for it in Ireland. Yeah, we've seen a real proactivity from some European countries to bring the insurance industry there. We're not talking very, very substantial numbers of jobs at this stage, but nevertheless, it really will have to be that firms set up with some substance in terms of people and capital. Let's talk about opportunities, particularly in the, in the small business world. What do you think, um, Alan? Opportunities. How vigorously are your members looking forward to... Uh, there are some who are actually very optimistic about this and sure on the other side there, there are some who, who have concerns as well. But I think one thing that, that's interesting from, from the research that we've done with our members is that the extent to which there, there is an appetite for trade deals with other countries, particularly English-speaking countries where there is not a language barrier, so the US, Canada, Australia, and where we, we found about one in five of our members currently export and a further one in five said if they were given the right support, the right opportunities, then they would consider it. Clearly taking that step is is big. But if the language barrier is not a part of it, then they th there was a feeling among some that that would make it a bit easier for them. So on that side, if these trade deals with elsewhere in the world are done right and done with not just bigger businesses in mind, but smaller businesses as well in terms of compliance with customs and so on and not having tariffs and uh, all the rest of it, then there is an opportunity there actually for, for growth in terms of exports in getting more smaller businesses that currently don't export actually doing so. On the flip side, the EU is still the biggest export market for smaller businesses and it's vital that the, the trade deal there is tariff-free and has as little in the way of hassle sure. and customs as possible. Yeah, in years gone by, I spent a lot of time in Hanover and uh, Cologne at the big electronics fairs and in the States too. But of course, if you go to the big, uh, the big uh, shows in, in Hanover, for instance, and people have been going there for years, small businesses, you know, you, you know your friends, you know your contacts. It's quite different than sort of taking on a, jumping on a plane to go to Lima. I mean, that's a pretty formidable thing for a small company, maybe turning over two or three million quid, you know, and they're going into the great unknown. I think that's I mean, that true. Terrifying. Uh, absolutely. And, and, and there's even just the, the, the cost of it apart from anything else. And, and, and one of the things that we've said is actually 
could the government bring in some sort of support such as export vouchers where a small business qualifies for export vouchers to, to, to spend on whatever they need to spend it on to be able to take advantage of whatever trade deals come along. And that might be going to trade fairs. It might be translating their website into a foreign language. Those very basic things. But actually, if, if you're a very small business, you, you know, only 10 employees, then they are a big factor and they do seem to be quite big steps to take. Indeed. Let's turn to insurance, shall we? Now then, Jonathan, Ben, Your job is to be prepared for the worst, so the insurance industry must be way ahead of everyone else. Jonathan. Yes, I mean, I think as we've uh, discussed already this morning, uh, most insurers had contingency plans in place um, when the the vote happened, and they were able to implement many of those contingencies uh, straight away. But there's only so much that uh, insurers are in control of the process. I think at the heart of this, we need to think about the customer, And the Bank of England's numbers say there are 6 million UK customers that are currently um, receiving their insurance from EU companies. And there are 30 million EU customers that receive insurance from UK companies. And at the moment, there is no clarity on how those insurers will be able to continue to make payments to uh, those customers after Brexit. So you could think of somebody who bought their pension in London and wanted to retire to the south of France. They may not be able to be paid their pension after Brexit. So there are some issues that still need to be worked through and there are some issues that need clarity from politicians. Well, I bought my pension in London and I live in the south of France. This is rather worrying. It, it is. I just get it paid into my UK account, presumably. Uh, there, there are ways around it for clients. You will have to be able to communicate with your clients and tell them what what is happening. But at the moment, because of the uncertainty, nobody wants to communicate with a customer and tell them there are 10 different uncertainties to manage. Everybody, and the regulators included, want you to wait until there is a point of certainty so that you can tell your customer in one one communication what to do. I focus on commercial insurance and the London insurance market is one of the leading global centres for that type of insurance because of the concentration of capital and talent that sits in London. There's about £8 billion worth of European risk that's underwritten in London and maintaining access for those clients to the London insurance market is an absolutely critical part of firms' contingency plans. It's a very heavily intermediated market. So one of the areas where I think there's still progress to be made is connecting insurance insurance brokers with insurers and the reinsurers that are fundamental to make that market work in order to ensure those trade flows are maintained. And Nick, sorry, could I, if I could just chip in. I mean, I, I, I think what's interesting for us when we focus on, on Brexit is people always focus on, on trade. And yet, you know, the UK, if we're lucky, 20% of our economy is focusing on, on, on trade. Whereas when we think about financial services in the broadest, broadest sense, um, it's at least as big, if not bigger, in terms of its uh, importance. And yet the irony, it, just picking up on, on, on earlier colleague, uh, colleagues' comments, is most of them are all obeying the same European rules. We're all currently suffering MIFID two and the implementation that that has, that has had. We're all on the same, effectually, financial equivalence policies, solvency two for the insurance industry, all the, all the Basel regimes for the, for, for the banks. And we, we find ourselves quite, um, quite bipolar about this because we have some of our lawyers who believe 
there's nothing to change. Everything should stay as it is because we're all obeying the same rules. And we have other lawyers who go, oh, no, no, Brexit completely fundamentally changes this. And I think for many of us, when we're all doing the same thing and we're all obeying the same rules, financial, financial equivalence eventually simply becomes a political decision. And I think that makes it even worse for the financial services industry because we actually know that all the insurance companies, whether they are UK or European, are doing the same thing. They are obeying the same rules. So why should Brexit actually change some of the ramifications for, for these industries? Because we're all on the same playing field. And I think what's interesting about that is on day one, it, the government's approach is to copy and paste all EU legislation onto the UK statute book. So we will be identical on day one. And I think from, from our point of view, we actually see the EU drifting first. The EU will come to review many of these parts of legislation far quicker than the UK ever does. So you may get drift or regulatory change on the EU side rather than the UK side. And then there will be a debate in the UK um, media and political spheres to decide, are we going to be a rule taker or not? And I think from our point of view, being a rule taker uh, is just not an acceptable outcome in the in the long term, given that, as as colleagues have said, you know, the UK and financial services markets are just so large and so concentrated uh, that being a rule taker from another jurisdiction would not be worth it. The the Treasury have published now a draft view of how they intend to translate EU regulation into UK regulation. And in that, they say, as part of the process, they intend to correct certain deficiencies. Now, they haven't given further clarity on what those might be, but I do hope they'll be asking industry to provide input to that process, because I'm sure there'll be plenty of ideas, both around the table and more widely. Alan, we're all saying, oh, we're not ready, our businesses, we're so worried. The Europeans, presumably, are pretty worried too. They're, they're pouring BMWs and Mercedes and Audis and Porsches and all the other things that come out of Germany and France in here. They must be equally worried or are they more relaxed about it? I think where there are European supply chains for, for smaller businesses, it, it's going to be very interesting to see how it how it turns out. Because while, yes, some will be thinking, do we need to move more into mainland Europe? Or do, do we need to begin having a base in... Funnily enough, I was talking to a small business owner only yesterday. He was saying that, that they have decided even though they don't quite know what the outcome is going to be, to set up a branch in, in Germany because they do have some clients in Germany. But actually, that's a good thing for them because that's an expansion of their business. On the other hand, one of our members runs a, a healthy drinks manufacturing business that has lots of European supply chains and and was saying to me, well, you know what, we're actually going to bring more of the manufacturing to the UK and, and create more jobs in the UK. So I think it's going to be a really mixed picture. But it will depend on, on how easy trade is across borders with the EU. What I would say, and I, I feel that this is not necessarily, uh, it's simply my observation, is I think that w we cannot expect a soft Brexit. This is going to be hard and therefore, anyone who is trying to trying to think about the that from their business perspective, they have to plan for a degree of difficulty that they may not wish to see. But I would also say I still feel there's a, a higher than um, uh, normal chance of uh, of there being no deal. Uh, and therefore, we either go to WTO or or something uh, something that's more acrimonious and and looks more like what I would call a divorce. Because I think if we backpedal, this is effectively what we're doing between the UK and the and the European Union. And, and I think people need to think about that quite quite carefully. Yes, I completely agree. And we've we've long used the phrase "hope for the best and plan for the worst." 
And I think that's what many insurers have been been doing. They're making sure they are set up for the no-deal Brexit. Uh, obviously, I caveated that earlier by saying there are some things in your control and there are some things that are only in government's uh, control uh, as well. I think there are also many second-order effects of issues like um, tariffs. If you think of the UK motor sector and the motor insurance sector, if there are tariffs on um, goods uh, and tariffs on parts for motor vehicles, that will increase repair costs. Increase of repair costs will increase the cost of your car insurance. Uh, Sterling has uh, depreciated. Many travel insurance claims are paid out in foreign currency. That will increase costs for travel insurance. So there are many second-order effects as well that across the financial services world and and will be borne by customers in the end. What sort of message can we send to the broker, the broker who's listening to this podcast? That it's vital that they engage with the insurers that they trade with to understand the nature of their contingency plans and be prepared to connect up with them. I think there's quite a lot more progress that still needs to be made in that area. It's also vital that they are communicating very actively with their own clients and explaining what insurers' contingency plans are and doing everything they can to Brexit-proof their insurance placement. I think staying close to their customers to understand exactly what advice they need to be giving them uh, is, is going to be an increasingly bespoke business because no small business is, is the same. Neil, you spoke uh, eloquently about financial services. It's a huge part of our GDP. I can't remember the exact uh, percentage, but it's amazingly strong. Can we make this a real selling point in external trade deals and capitalise on it, do you think? Yes, I, b- I believe we can. I think the position of London as one of the two or three major financial centres around the world, I think, does give us a tremendous competitive advantage. There is not going to be a competitor in, in, in Europe. Um, and, and therefore, I think the, the, the key for us is to is to show the innovation that I think the City of London has done um, from the days of you know the ships going up to to the uh, to India to collect the spices and and everything else and that created the insurance industry the auditing industry uh, the accounting industry all these so I think we have a fine a fine heritage certainly when I travel through Asia I get asked a lot about a connect system being built not only from Shanghai to Hong Kong but increasingly to London and I think if that suddenly uh, were to to to, to, to materialise from a financial services perspective. I think a lot of the world would think, gosh, that really does make London the number one financial centre if we can lock and load some of the big economies in in Asia. So I think there's a, there's a lot of opportunity, but I think we're going to need to encourage our banks and our insurance companies and our asset managers to be proactive and look to the future rather than be very, very defensive and trying to hunker down and just hope it all sort of goes away, metaphorically. Jonathan. Yes, I, I completely, completely agree. I think the the one thing to bear in mind, though, is there is no free trade deal in the world that includes financial services or a major financial services chapter, and that free trade deals take a very long time to negotiate. But a lot can be done through economic and financial dialogues. A lot can be done for treasury departments in different countries talking to each other, looking at the regulations that exist, getting regulators in different countries to trust each other. And I think at the priority markets for the UK insurance sector is definitely China, India, Indonesia, Latin America. There are major, major opportunities um, where we can look at going beyond joint ventures that already exist, increasing uh, the foreign investment of capital in those markets, looking at the growing middle class, the increasing savings that people are doing in the Far East, and the mature markets that exist 
from insurance companies in the UK are well-placed to actually access those markets. Ben? UK commercial insurance is a huge export market. So the EU27 is around 13% of that market. The US is 30%, well over 30%, actually. So a focus on mature markets and specifically the US, prioritising a financial services trade deal with the US would be of huge benefit to the market. What about mergers and acquisitions? Are we going to see that heat, heating up at all? Well, I, I would I would say from a um, just from a general perspective, I, I think the um, the M and A cycle doesn't necessarily have anything to do with um, with Brexit. I think sometimes actually you would assume that the political uncertainty may put people off uh, wanting to to deal because they're not quite sure what will happen to their assets five or ten years down the line when when we have a, a Brexit deal. But I I think it's very very clear that. I think what we forget about often when we read all the headlines and worry about the concerns of the UK economy is the UK economy is still the fifth largest market in the world and there are an awful lot of companies who would like their piece of it and they can either access that by coming to the UK and and producing and and competing and providing the services or they can buy a business that's already here that gives them that exposure. So I I think what we're seeing at the moment in the last five or six months has been the UK has rightly underperformed because of the uncertainty and there's now a lot of interest in a lot of UK corporate assets from both European, American and emerging market uh, companies, all of whom who are sitting there going, this is a big market and I want to have a piece of it. Indeed. And Cross-border supply chains need insurance and the impact of those cross-border supply chains with the EU27 of Brexit is very substantial. So clients and brokers who are listening to this should be putting pressure on the insurance firms to ensure they have very clear plans to mitigate that impact. Now, as we've been saying, we do believe those plans are very much in place and and developing. But nevertheless, it's very important to to continue to keep that pressure up on the industry, just as the industry is keeping the pressure up through the ABI and others on the government. Final question. Quick round-the-table discussion here. Should businesses wait and see for the outcome of the deal or get prepared now? Don't, Don't wait. Definitely don't wait. Get get your plans in place and make sure that you know how you're going to be talking to your customer and talking to your client. And even with small businesses too, would you go along with that? I think it's important for people to obviously be mindful of it, as, uh, as I think most people are. But it's it's difficult to plan ahead when you don't know what you're going to be planning for. And one of the things that I think is important to mitigate the, the risks for, for smaller businesses is for, for the government and others involved in the negotiations to keep listening to the voice of business, big and small, as they're going through these negotiations. So that, that whatever deal is being arranged, whether it's trade, whether it's access to workers and skills and so on, so that that is a, a, a business-friendly deal because otherwise Brexit is not going to work very well for us. Where can people go for politically neutral advice? Is there anywhere that one can uh, go? Con- mm. Contact your friendly uh, trade body. Um, That's it. I, I, I feel that, you know, we have two two trade bodies around the table, but that's that's our bread and butter. That is what we do. We are looking at political risks, economic risks that are faced by our industries and trying to provide provide advice and trying to influence governments and regulators to provide the best possible situation for those businesses to operate in. And I, I would actually just add, try and put your personal feelings, whether you are a lever or a remainer to one side and look at your business and its opportunities and its strengths and weaknesses as objectively as you can in the scenarios of what 
we may see unfold and be negotiated. I think the problem for a lot of people is they they look at their look at their challenges through the lens of what they wanted to happen. That's a big and, mistake, and, and I, that's a big mistake because it means you're more subjective about your conclusions rather than being hardly objective about what uh, what your choices and your options may, may prove to be. This is absolutely not just a UK issue. And we, of course, work with many EU businesses who want to maintain their trade with the UK. Allianz, of course, is, is one. Um, so it's absolutely vital to take that politically neutral view. OK, so on balance, who feels more positive than negative on the outcome? Maybe you've changed your minds? Anybody? I feel positive about the opportunity for insurers to grow in Europe. Many UK insurers have had relatively small-scale businesses that they're now significantly refocusing on with these subsidiaries they're establishing. So I think there's a real opportunity for them to focus on growth in the coming years. Jonathan? I think, uh, to paraphrase, um, someone, someone said it's too soon to tell, and I think it is too soon to tell whether this is you know going to be positive or going to be negative. I think all businesses are looking for and all customers are looking for is some certainty in this process. So let's get over the hurdle of leaving and the transitional phase and then we can get on to really negotiating what's good for Britain and what's good for a global Britain. Alan, do you detect any shift in your membership? I think there is, whatever side of the argument people were on, I I, I do detect among a lot of our members a, a wish just to get on with it, just to find out what the what the deal is going to be, what the situation is going to be. And it is still, I, I think, too early to tell whether uh, it's going to be a, a good pro-business Brexit or not, because things are still at such an early stage. But I, I, I do think that, that people think, right, Brexit is happening. Let's just crack on and, and find out what it is that we're going to be dealing with. Not all small businesses, but, but I think there is a growing feeling among the small business community for that. I, I would agree with almost everything that's been said, and all I would all I would add is I think the UK has always been half in and half out. I think we have decided we're now out, and therefore I think from a UK's specific perspective, we should be positive about the future that we can we can build. Um, and I think we can also I I think now that we are leaving, uh, encourage Europe to do everything that it has dreamed to do. Because I would argue at the margin, the UK has not been a force for good all the time in the journey to what I loosely describe as the United States of Europe. And now that we're out, everyone else who's in can get on with it and can build the type of future that maybe in 50 years time, we'll be back around the microphones going, maybe we shouldn't have left. But that would be good because if Europe is good, then the UK will have a strong trading partner and good prospects and uh, and we can all go on holiday with the euro and, and thoroughly enjoy it. So I think it could it could be a win-win for both sides. But I, I think the, the, the shock, coming back to your first question, I think the mm. shock has set everyone back on their heels a little and people are, have a bit more negativity about it and difficulty about it rather than saying that there's opportunities for both sides. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody. So that brings this episode to an end. But please do subscribe to the series through your podcast app. That way, you'll be sure of never missing an episode, and we'd really appreciate you leaving us a review too. We'll be back to explore another major global trend in the next episode of tomorrow. In the meantime, from me, Nick Hewer, it's goodbye. <laughs>